Hello, my friends, and welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season eight, episode 12. Today on the podcast, we have Edelette McVicker. You're going to love learning and listening in to what she has today has to say because her latest book is called Recovering Racist. What an intriguing title. You're going to love the conversation. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Compassion Canada and the Four C's. That is a Canadian Center for Christian Charities for making this podcast possible. This episode is coming to your ears or to your eyes because of them. So if you're listening and you're not watching, reminder that our YouTube channel has a whole back catalog of our podcasts as well. Every single week, we're coming out with tutorials. So if you aren't in the Digital Church Facebook group where you're catching up with us week to week, you may want to start your journey further in with us on the Word Made Digital YouTube channel. So go check it out. Let me tell you a little bit about Elette. She was born and raised in South Africa during the apartheid era. And when she was about 16, she read a book that radically changed her belief system and particularly around the white world that she grew up in. And she spent a ton of time ever since trying to wrestle with what she learned. In 1995, her journey took her to Taiwan and she worked as a reporter. And then in 1999, she fell in love with a Canadian and ended up in Canada where she now with some teenagers and dogs and they have a restaurant. She's the founder of She Loves Media and She Loves Magazine. And she has this thing, I love the name of it, the Dangerous Women Community. So she loves Jesus, justice, and living juicy, as she likes to say. So enjoy this conversation with Edelette McVicker. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Edelette McVicker, welcome to Word Made Digital. It's about time, I feel, that I had you on the podcast. Uh, and it's been so long since we've been in the same place. This is a good excuse to, to get together and hear how you are and, and hear and learn from you. Uh, so welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. I'm, uh, I'm just honored to be here. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's so good to be with you. Yes. And I actually, you know... I think it's beautiful when we can use the internet for good things, right? right? For connection, <laughs> for meaningful conversations, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. For relationship. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, before we go too far, um, you know, we have a big conversation to tackle today and, uh, actually just spoke the other day to Lisa, Lisa Sharon, Harp, Sharon Harper, um, and so we're on sort of on theme here with your conversation. I know she's written into like written uh, the introduction to your book or the foreword to your book. Yeah. She wrote the yeah. foreword. Yes. So generous. So, okay. Before we go too far into all of that though, like just give us some context. <laughs> who, who are you? <laughs> uh, can you introduce yourself to everyone? <sighs> okay. Well, my name is Idolette and, um, hmm. 22 years ago, I moved to Canada from Taiwan, actually, right. and married a Canadian. And um, I've lived here. So I'm an immigrant to Canada, to North America. And um, I today, I'm just, I'm on the unceded territories of the uh, Kwantlen, the Semiyamu, and the Stolo peoples. And so that learning that history has also really mm. been a beautiful part of my story. I was born and raised in South Africa. 
And so that is what's going to shape our yes. conversation today, yes. I believe. Um, I'm a writer. I'm a creator. I like, I like to tell stories. Um, I have three teenagers and a Two dogs. Two now. dogs. We All got right. COVID Christmas puppies. Yeah, we got another one <laughs> at Christmas. And um, yes, so you know, I do, I do all the things. But at my heart, I, um, yeah, I, I follow Jesus, and I love to create things. I've, I love love. <laughs> um, I am the founder of a community called She Loves Magazine, um, and we have a, a membership community called Dangerous Women. So Which I love it's really the name around of, this idea by the way, of- Dangerous Women. <laughs> that sounds like a club that we want to, we all want to be part of and know the secret handshake for. <laughs> well, it's the idea of being dangerous to the status quo, right? And so I listened to um, Walter Brueggemann one time and he's, he's, oh, I just, he's such a beautiful uh, preacher and theologian, right? And he talked about, and he was sweeping through Isaiah and he talked about how, uh, followers of Jesus have to be dangerous to the status quo. And I was like, we got to be dangerous women. So um, that's kind of where that is from, right? And just this, for me, growing up in a white status quo, white dominant society in South Africa during apartheid, um, that's really important to me, right? To be aware of where is the status quo oppressive? Where is it liberating? Uh, where does it serve love? Right? Where does it serve justice? Where does it seek justice? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Well, a little bit and, about and of me. course, uh, well, of course, for you and I, but um, for people listening, uh, we interacted originally around sort of conversations about women and women in Canada and the voice of women. And specifically, you were drawn into these conversations because of She Loves magazine. And so, um, where is where is that at today? I'd love to get an update from you because I'm I'd love to hear like how has that uh, changed, grown, evolved over the last number of years? Um, you're doing so many other things now. Is that taking a back seat? Tell us a little bit about She Loves. I think the heart of She Loves has has not changed. We have just moved more from um, blogging to now we launched a podcast as well, and I think. When um, the internet kind of changed around blogging, moved to more, I guess, conversational style, moved to more short, short blogging, Instagram, that kind of thing, right? So we're kind of like took it back, like just kind of step back and like, oh, what do we need mm-hmm. to do? Who are we in this conversation? And I think our hearts always being around conversations and and having conversations that transform, and so and community and how do we build community and. I just, while I was going through my process of writing my book, I realized I I first, to be honest with you, I actually put up a proposal to write a book on sisterhood and publishers were looking at it and were interested. And, um, there was just a moment in history in 2016, I had just come back from Israel and Palestine as well. And I was very aware of, um, this, the history in Canada about residential schools. I was, I was training to be a facilitator with a, with a Kairos blanket exercise. And I realized the reason I'm so passionate about sisterhood and about community and about movement is because of my story growing up in South Hmm. Africa and how we separated people and how, um, I care about justice. And so for me, that word justice needed to be unpacked in more richer, fuller ways. And, and I felt like we were not talking about the same things when we were talking about justice. And so I realized I needed to write my story first. 
I needed to talk about how does it feel when you find yourself waking up on the other, on the wrong side of justice. And now you thought you were a good person. You even thought you were a Christian. Yeah. I went to church every Sunday in our church, every Sunday in our community, like my, my Dutch reformed church in our community. My background's and Dutch too, by the up. way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you're like, but who is this Jesus that we followed? And is this the same Jesus that is the God of the universe and the God of the nations? Or is this the, are we embracing a Jesus who just likes white people in the church? Because literally it was just a white church, right? Um, the In fact, the Dutch Reformed, was, which was a national church at the time in South Africa, uh, created a theology that supported this, this, um, status of apartheid this this um what the united nations called a crime against humanity right laws and laws and laws upon laws that oppress mm. people and separate people based on the color of our skin right and so um yeah i i needed to tell that story because when i talk about sisterhood and so she loves that is the ethos right and so then we were like, okay, well, here I am. We, it's always been this idea of a global sister. We want to have voices from around the world, people talking about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how do we, does something need to change? Because here I was now, we were having conversations about race and justice. And I felt like we couldn't have the conversations and even hear the stories with me as a white woman hmm. at the front. So hmm. we made one shift. Um, I stepped down from the editor-in-chief wow. position and we asked Leah Abraham to come and, and take on that position. And it's been a beautiful transition for that, right? And so we're learning. Um, it's been much more moving out of a hierarchical structure um, to a communal kind of a circle kind of structure. The team, we make more communal decisions. Can we talk about, before so we go too far, to- we got to talk about that because um, I, I want to yeah. pull on that thread a little bit. If you could flesh that out a bit for us. I know it's not, it, it's not the purpose of today's conversation. And yet it, I think it very much is because if you can, because it's practical application of what you're talking about through this whole book and through the conversation. Um, like we're seeing in the church in Canada, the church around the world, like just in our city, a, a major pastor of one of the largest churches in Canada is, you know, all this, you know, sexual abuse stuff has come out or whatever. I'm sorry. I don't want to use the wrong words. Uh, there's been sexual misconduct and abuse of power and things like this um, by him towards women uh, in the church. And this has all come out, you know, recently. And then you see the, the Brian Houston of Hillsong has just been come up, come up recently. It just seems like every month there's some, somebody new and sort of in response to that. Um, one of the things I've been seeing is questions about, is there a different way we could lead? Can we lead more collaboratively? Is there a way to not have this one guy at the top? And when he fails, um, and in some way, all of us will fail. We're all imperfect. I don't mean that as an out for these guys, but, uh, you know, the whole thing can crumble because of the one person's failure. Anyways, I'd love to, to pull at that a little bit. Tell, tell us about that, the changes you're trying to make and how you make decisions and build the structure of leadership to get away from the one guy at the top or the one woman at the top. Right. 
yeah, it's just moving things into more collaborative decision making. So it takes long, it takes longer, right? Mm. It takes more time. Uh, things are not, and you have to be willing to do that. I think that's part of that. Um, to ask hard questions. We're really working hard on relationships and um, working on our relationships within our team that that the spaces between us is filled with goodness and love and trust, right? That when, and we are not, you know, it's like, we're not moving as fast. We're not going for big things. We're really trying to, to honor slow and huh. intentionality and relationship and not move to kind of achieve some kind of huge goals that would say, oh, you've arrived at anything. But I think for us, it's like when we've, when we look at the year, we're like, did we love each other? Well, did we love our community? Well, are we speaking up about the things that matter? Are we holding conversations that matter? For example, last year, we, we hosted a conversation on, 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 on Canada day, right. Mm. On, on, on July 1st. And we're like, this has been years in the coming. Right. And for me, I was like, I cannot do a Canada Day without acknowledging the pain of the past. And so we hosted a conversation led by Indigenous leaders and by allies. And uh, it was called Decolonizing a National Holiday. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, for people listening from outside um, of Canada, just some context, right before Canada Day in the weeks and a few months leading up, all this new information, or I should say not new, but uh, new new yeah. uh, in the news, <laughs> uh, meaning the right. news was sure. talking okay. about, um, you know, the discovery of these mass graves at residential schools for Indigenous children and discovering, you know, but- brutal conditions, abuse, et cetera. And in many cases done by churches, church leaders in those schools. Um, and so how do you celebrate Canada Day at, at the same time that in the news at that moment was like massive amounts of death. Um, uh, or, and, and so, yeah. So you held a day about that uh, in, in, for. We just said, yeah, we were like, we're, yeah, we wanted to honor. Um, yeah. We wanted to we, like, and it wasn't even just a Canadian thing because this story is not a Canadian story. I'll tell you the first time I heard about, Indigenous people being oppressed when was when I was living in Taiwan, when I when a, an Indigenous woman used to because I worked as a reporter in Taiwan, and so an Indigenous woman her name was Nancy and she used to tell me about what was happening with girls and women in Taiwan, and and I was like and I started paying attention and of course then I have to take a look at, in South Africa what's happened there and then so when I came to to Canada I realized and he, immediately hearing about missing and murdered Indigenous women, and so. Um, yeah, this has been, um, yeah, this is a story that is, that is a global story. And when we talk about decolonization, right, that's a, that's an African story, right? That is an Australian story, a New Zealand story. Like that's, that, that's a, an American story too, right? Like that's not just, that's me taking, taking a very good look at what was happening, um, so many years before, like, and how did I end up in South Africa and how did I end up in Canada? 
And, and this was also for me that connected part. So when I was taking the, the, the facilitators training for the Kairos blanket exercise, this is a beautiful, beautiful, um, community of people who, who tell the story in, in like, literally in like an hour, you could, you, you have this immersive practice, right? And so, um, when I was taking the training for that, one of the teachers in the room said, uh, did you know that the people who created apartheid came to Canada to study residential schools, not residential schools, to study um, the reserve system because they wanted to export that to South Africa to learn what they could do in South Africa, right? And so these stories are deeply connected. And I think I used to think, you know, I when I came here to Canada, I said, oh, I've come to the land of milk and maple syrup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From a, from a, right? right? A kind yeah. of a promised land mm-hmm. idea, right? A promised land idea, kind of really, really entering that story in that way. And I was like, oh, right. I remember walking in Victoria and the city of Victoria and the hanging baskets and the flowers and the fruit was so beautiful and just eating berries. And I'm like, oh, and I was like, okay, I can, I can live here and, 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 and have my being and then be very conscious about what's happening in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go, Oh, these things are all connected, mm. right? And right here, this story in my backyard, right? And I notice a lot of people uh, who, who kind of wasn't aware even of residential schools or what was happening with Indigenous people in Canada mm. going like, what do I do with the shame? Yeah. What do I do with the shame? Like, we had done this. And so there was this kind of, I know just a collective responsibility. And, and so that was kind of my story, what I had to do after I woke up from apartheid. And I was like, what do I do with this shame? Mm. We have done this. I know that God does not want to keep me in this place of shame, that there is an invitation here. But how do we walk out of this and how do we seek justice? How do we love mercy? How do we walk humbly, right? So that's, so I'm hoping this book lands in in that place of oh i find myself i am a good person i think of myself as a good person and yet i have participated in these injustices um maybe not in an overt way but my presence my story being being benefiting from the laws right literally benefiting financially benefiting yeah. from that right so, so can you take us back um, there um like let's start uh i want to get to the point where this there was this awakening for you but before we get that give us like okay. the first context okay. uh where how you were born and raised uh like what what did that look like for you yeah. um i think for most of us when we right. think of the south african story we just know some of it from again the news or some films maybe um, about apartheid, yeah. but tell us yeah. what it was for you right? or for your um, family, you know, we so, are a greater yeah, family I, that you entered right, into. Right, right, yeah. right, right, <laughs> right. You know, um, I was born in a, in a town called Parl and I was literally born on the white side of the hospital. Hmm. There was a white side and there was a side for black people or people of color. And so from the beginning, in South Africa at that time as literally the height of, of apartheid, like right into the center of apartheid. Apartheid started in 1948 when a national party won an, an election, but only white people could vote at the time, right? 
And so they won this election. They had a very nationalist agenda. And um, they said, well, we're going to separate people. They had this apartheid policy that they that they said this is how we're gonna this is how we're gonna run the country this is how we bring solution right and so literally created racial classifications for people a classification that hadn't even existed oh interesting it didn't exist prior to that that time some of that hadn't existed yes so like in South Africa, there is a word colored. We don't use that here in North American context. We use people of color, right? Um, but that racial classification was literally created. And so people had to have on their identity documents what racial classification they were. But until that time, no. They were, yeah. So, um, you know, like this was created. Um, and so... I was born into that. So it was on my identity document right then was said white, right? And so our neighborhood where I lived was all white. I had no neighbors of color, no neighbors who were black, no neighbors who were indigenous. And so think about that in a country in Africa, on the southernmost point of Africa, here is a community just white people. I mean, like... The it penguins is, of South is, Africa are more black and white than the people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, your, your context, yeah, so you I grew, grew up, up, just, you grew up in a white context. White yeah, bubble. You had white, I assume white a bubble, white church, right? white school. Yeah. So white church in the neighborhood, white, all, all white students, all white teachers, Um, and really a hierarchy of even how jobs were assigned. Like literally apartheid created designations where if you were a person of color, you could only study to a certain level. Or if you were a black person, you literally could not go and study to be an engineer. Right. It it was, it was awful. It was, it was so evil in its intent and in its strategy, right. To create these layers of hierarchy and value of worth and, it is just awful, right? So, um, yeah, so that's what I was born into. And so I think, you know, and you go to church and you learn about Jesus and you, I was, you know, baptized and I go to Sunday school. I mean, we prayed in school. Mm. We did all of those things, right? And yet <laughs> we live in this context that is upheld by a violent government, mm. right? And we heard about the violence in 1995 with um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as people started telling their stories too, right? And so, but none of that was, it was so, it was so kept so quiet, right? It was so, the media was all um, controlled by the government, Hmm. right? So nothing that was against apartheid could be, Hmm. could be um, written really, right? And 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 so when I was 16, my dad... I was yeah. going to say, what, what was the feeling That's in okay. your church community or your family? Like, was was it um, subtle or was it blatant racism? I mean, like, how were how were people of color talked about, yeah. or were they even at were, were they ever spoken of? Um, you know, was it those are dangerous people over there, or those are people that come to our house to do work, or? Um, yeah, and yeah, and I and I want to if there's people of color or black people or indigenous people listening, like I just I I want to be respectful yeah. of that. And so if this is something that is triggering for you, please 
um, I understand that sometimes if a white person is saying this language, that that could yeah, be very, yeah. could, be, could be really harmful. And uh, yeah, you don't even need so, uh, to be specific, uh, uh, yeah. but just broadly, was it overt yeah. or was it um, subtleties for you as a, in your child? Subtleties, subtleties, yeah. subtleties, yeah, subtleties right? Like, yeah, sure. The way people were talked about. I talk about in my book about our gardener and um, his name was Flip. And I was, um, I was a little girl. And this is just how I was introduced to him. And for everybody else, we would call them uncle, auntie, Mr. and Mrs., right? But he was a person of color. And I was just like, here, I'm a little pipsqueak. Mm. And I'm told this older gentleman, his name is Flip, right? Um, so kind of that showed a little bit of that. But then, and then also, and this is this, I had to carry him in my consciousness for a very long time and really wrestle um, with that because it was, this was, I realized this is where the racism lived in our home. It was so subtle, but it was also so real because there was a separate plate and a separate fork mm. oh. and a separate spoon mm. and a separate mug for Flip in our kitchen. Mm. And so that was our racism. Pausing the conversation with Idalette to talk about transformation because it can feel like a bit of a buzzword and we're throwing some buzzwords around in this podcast episode, but what does transformation look like? One place transformation is so evident is in the stories of former Compassion children, graduates or alumni of the Compassion program who are now adults and telling their story of how sponsorship actually impacted them. Like take Rhea, she's originally from the Philippines and had this impactful line, knowing someone cares for you, that changes you. Rhea's story powerfully highlights how being sponsored built Christ-like confidence in her that empowered her to take hold of a future free from poverty. Today, she's a passionate advocate for kids and sponsors a child of her own from the same community where she grew up. How cool is that? Child sponsorship transforms lives. And you can find Rhea's full story and learn more about child sponsorship at compassion.ca slash if only. Compassion.ca slash if dash only. The link will be down in the show notes. moment uh when you were a teenager that was a shift for you so my dad taught german um he wasn't from german descent we're dutch descent um but he taught german and um he took us a group of, of german of his german students to germany during my 16th year i was grade 10 and uh, we did a little bit of Belgium and Germany. And I remember my dad took us to Dachau, which was a concentration camp. And um, and I, I, rem- I, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't really conscious. You're not really conscious of the evil of the world. But that day I faced it. I saw it. And I was like, I remember thinking, how can people do this to each other? And it was such a, it was such a, an awful, awful place to stand in. And I remember the land, the, like this, the crunch of the gravel, the coldness of the day, the coldness of the history, right? 
and they're reckoning with the story. And, you know, that remains with you, right? We stood in the gas chambers, right? And it can be so... I didn't know where we were until I understood where we were, if that makes any sense. Like, it was just cement, looks like showers. And you're in this sort of basement area. And then all of a sudden, it's like the light goes on. You're like, oh, this is a gas chamber. Right. Like this, oh, what happened And then you see the photos of people. Yeah. And so I went home with that consciousness, still thinking, huh, this is in Germany. But I take that consciousness home Hmm. now. And at that time, because of sanctions, because of international pressure, and because of local, local, um, just the growing movement, the anti-apartheid movement, um, things were starting to get unbanned, books were getting unbanned. Um, And so I walked into the library like I, I was, I was an avid reader and I walked into the library one day soon after that trip. And I remember I walked, just walked in and there was a turnstile and it, this little sign up says recently unbanned books. And wow. Like, oh, they even labeled them. That's so interesting. They made recently them easy to find then. <laughs> yeah. I was so naive. Right. And I walk up and I pick up this book and I'm like, hmm, this feels a little dangerous. <laughs> Right. And um I was like, but what yeah, what can be a book and be so dangerous, can it? Right. Right. And then I started reading that book, and it was called A Dry White Season. And it was a white author, but he talked about a relationship with a black man in a way that I hadn't heard. Hmm. And also the, he told a story of, of apartheid and of South Africa that I hadn't heard in that way. And it was like as I was reading this book, it felt like the construct of my childhood and of my understanding of identity and who I was in the world and what goodness was and what good people, who good people were and who I was in the world crumbled. Wow. And so, yeah, that was, it was a huge shattering of just my understanding of life really what was faith um and so well and what i I, love too is that you're reading it at an age where you're still willing to change your worldview where i think that you know i don't know what the psychology of it is the experts would say there's probably a there's you know the younger you are the more able you are to get new information and consider a new perspective see the world differently but the more ingrained you become in a way of thinking and a culture, there's more at stake or the costs just get higher and higher, which is why you don't often see a 50 year old change their mind. (laughs) It's much harder. The cost, the cost is high. The cost gets higher and higher. I think so. Right. And yes, what are we willing to do for that? Right. Yeah. And I I think that, I mean, I I come to that idea of be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. Like, and I think so that is so important, right? That renewing, renewing, renewing. So that for me was like a shattering. <laughs> it was not a gentle renewing. This was a shattering. And I was disillusioned. I was angry. I was angry with my, I was angry with my teachers who had told me a certain story about history, right? I was angry with faith leaders who said, huh, this is how you follow Jesus. And I was like, um, but you created apartheid. How can you justify 
How do you bring, how do you reconcile these two things? I was angry with government leaders, right? So here you're like, you're, you're taught to honor the leaders, right? And, um, and so I, I, I was angry with that, right? And so that was a whole process too of, of learning. Uh, what do I do with that? Right. So I was angry, disillusioned and just kind of left everything. I was like, I didn't have language to process it with. I didn't have people to process it with. We didn't talk about these things. People didn't talk about apartheid. White people didn't talk about apartheid. Right. We like to talk about rugby and the braai and the weather. Right. So the good, the, you know, just like the, the, the light stuff. Right. So I didn't have anybody to process with, but at the same time, things were uh, were opening up. Um, Nineteen ninety, uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison about fifteen minutes from where I lived, actually. Wow. And yeah, and um, you know, nineteen ninety four, we had our first democratic elections, right? So I still thought, because I now am no longer supporting apartheid, I am a good person in this story. Now I am the progressive thinker. I am the liberal thinker. I am the good person in this story. Mm. And I was like, mm. and then I went to Taiwan and um, I was not expecting this, but this is where I met Jesus in a new way. Wow. Right. And so around a table of women, what we call the women's power breakfast. And it was a Canadian woman, Dorothy, who hosted that. And I remember the first day walking in there and I was so far away from a faith or anything. And these women, but I was hungry too for something, right? And these women, you know, prayed and they put their heads down and I was like, hmm, my mom prays. <laughs> and so in Taiwan is where I found this a different Jesus mm -hmm. who then started saying, okay, now, now that you're following me again, now let's look at your story. And how, what do you do with this past? And how do you reckon with mm -hmm. this? Um, and I, for me, you know, and I think this language gets, gets tricky for people, but for me, I didn't realize that racism was spirit, spiritual, huh. right? For me, my faith was always anti-racist and I just didn't have the language for that. But from that moment, because my, the deep intimacy with Jesus and because of my story and needing to wrestle with my identity in the world. I was, I was experiencing very, very deep shame, right? I was in a global community full of diplomats, people in the financial sector, international leaders, people who worked for the UN. Right. They knew what apartheid was. They understood what it meant for me to be an Afrikaans woman, to be an Afrikaner woman in the world. They understood where I stood during apartheid. Mm. And so I had to understand, okay, what do I do with that? Right? Who am I? Is there a place for me in the human story? Is there a place? And so I kind of just trust it and said, okay, Jesus, I, I believe you love me and I need to figure out how do I love me in this story and how do we reckon with this past? And so, um, yeah, there's a there's a beautiful um, South African theologian, Lerato Kobe, who who used that language. Racism is spiritual, mm. and I think I didn't understand it until I didn't I didn't have I couldn't name it the way she named it right until I when I was like, yeah, that's it, mm. that is it. So if so, sorry, yeah. if we talk about racism 
as spiritual um, or also spiritual. It could be, it's other things too, I suppose. But if it's spiritual, yeah. Yeah. Yes, 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 um, yes. how does that change how we attack it, address it, tear it down? identify it in ourselves even um yeah and maybe and maybe i wouldn't i wouldn't use war language for that either right like i would use and jesus says stand Mm. like stand firm right put on love (laughs) put on um you know um I don't know. The, I feel like more like love, patience, humility. Hmm. Fruit of the, fruit of the spirit. That's how we change life. The fruit love, of the joy, spirit, peace, right? Patience. And yeah. also, I would say for me, that's as a woman, as a white woman, mm-hmm. right? So there's, I think there's different places, right? Um, for how we do that. But if it, and okay, there's, I mean, this is such a big conversation, right? And so um, I found this distinguishment, this uh, work that Walter Brueggemann did around where do you find yourself in the story really helpful. Um, and so around that, that, that idea around Micah six, eight, right. Um, he talks about in, in, in communities of the, the oppressor and the oppressed. If you're looking at communities who are privileged and communities who have been oppressed, right? And so we can find ourselves in different places. Like let's say in the church right now, in that church, that woman, that girl, that young person is who had been sexually, um, there was sexual misconduct, right? She would be in the communities of what is called what Walter Brueggemann calls communities of permission. She can cry out. She can lament. She can be angry. She can shake her fists. She can shout at the heavens. She has permission to, to work through her grief, her anger, all of the emotions, right? When we are in the communities of requirement, these are the ones who have been privileged by the status quo. They're the ones who the text says, we have to seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly, right? So I think it's important in a story or in a context that we that we identify, where do I find myself in the story? Am I, am I in the privileged community? Am I in the community that has benefited from the story? Even if it is in subtle ways, right? In nuanced way, ways. Then I am in the communities of requirement. And then my question is, God, what is required of me? What does the Lord require of me? But if I am a black person, an indigenous person, a person of color in a story of oppression, story of race, there is a community, there is the text says you have permission to lament, to cry out, to be angry, right? To, to stomp your feet, to do what is necessary for you to walk through this, right? And for me, what I've learned as a community of requirement, I have to learn to listen to anger and to hold space for that deep grief, to hold space for that, for whatever needs to unfold, a space of love so that we can heal each other, that we can listen each other into healing, right? Um, Yeah, so different things when we talk about racism as spiritual, right? But for me as a white woman, those things have helped me a little bit in the story. 
I want to pause the conversation as we talk about this Canadian culture in which both Idola and I live to talk about a Canadian organization that organization that has been serving churches and charities for nearly 50 years. That's the Canadian Centre for Christian Charities, or maybe you know it as the Four C's. They support charities with their operational questions in areas like receiving donations, CRA guidance, board leadership, and training. Joining their membership is simple and really affordable, and it provides churches and charities with a vast knowledge base and a team of professionals willing to help you whenever you need them. It's like adding extra staff without adding extra staff, expertise that you don't have that they have to support you. So maybe even if you're a board member or an elder, Four C's membership is a great and affordable investment for you into your ministry staff team and volunteers visit cccc.org to learn more about them and join today cccc.org yeah we did a whole series here on the podcast about the fruit of the spirit and like we had a you know we went each episode was focusing on one of them and talking to leaders about essentially like how does this how does this play out that like, do we, it's the sniff test. Do we smell like the fruit of the spirit? And I appreciate you changing the language from, um, uh, you know, uh, a confrontational language to, um, maybe a language of humility or, um, yeah, just, I mean, the fruit of the spirit, just a a different kind of approach to the same problem. Um, um, yeah, I think that's very wise. And so, okay, so in your story, you have this experience in Taiwan. You're you're coming kind of of age into your your life, but also you're thinking around your identity and and the story that you have found yourself in. Um, and, and you know, f- then you move to Canada. <laughs> you know, I guess take us to the next part of of the journey for you. Um, because um, I feel like we kind of interrupted. Right. We I interrupted the story of where you were in Taiwan. Well, so Dorothy invited me to the Women's Power Breakfast. Um, was was Canadian, or she is Canadian, and uh, she kept inviting me to come to Canada, to come to Vancouver. And they they were running a, a ministry home on the Sunshine Coast, and I was like. I would love to go to Canada, of course. And so one summer I came in and, and I facilitated a workshop here for them. And um, I remember Dorothy was in her 60s at the time. And she, uh, she and my flight, you know, was arriving at like 1.40 in the morning. It was like, and I was like, Dorothy, I'm so sorry. I can't get a different flight. And she said, don't worry, Scott will pick you up. And so... Her her nephew Scott was um, was a bartender and a, a, a restaurant manager not not far from the airport. And Scott picked me up from the airport, and three months later we were married. So that's kind of how that happened. It was just like this really my life just we yeah you know like when you're ready. I was 27. Um, I was just in a place of of. Um, I would, yeah, to be honest, there's, I mean, we can talk about that, but, um, there was just a huge shift and I, and I had sensed that something was coming, but I didn't know. And, and I also wasn't really looking for a relationship with that. I was having so much fun in Taiwan. I loved living in Taiwan. I was, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to move. I just loved it. Right. And, um, but then, you know, you fall in love and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Things shift. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I guess. 
things shift and somebody's got to change. And I was living in Taiwan. I'm from South Africa. And I was never, never planning to leave South Africa. And yet, you know, Scott was here and he was much more established in, in that way. Right. And so it just made a lot more sense for me to come here. And so um, that was 22 years ago. So my story moved to Canada. So then, you know, I was really involved around the story of women. My mother-in-law, her name is Gwen McVicker. She was very involved with, um, or was invited into understanding uh, abuse against women, right? A lot of the stories we've been talking about, the Me Too, like this was in the 2000s. People were, the women were doing beautiful work around this and really um, asking hard questions like, why is this happening to women in the church? Why are the statistics not different for abuse and violence against women in the church than it is outside the church? And so I think being involved with that, and we wrote a prayer journal together, Gwen and I, and was called Discovering God's Heart for Suffering Women. And I remember because I wasn't interested in women, women, women's ministry. Like the idea of women's ministry was kind of like, you know, I thought about tea and, you know, that kind of thing. And and I was like, yeah, that's not me. That's not me. Right. And so, but when I understood as I was sitting with these stories from women and girls around the world, including missing and murdered indigenous women, right. In Canada and in other parts of the world, I, there was just this, this, it was just like this, um, understanding for God's heart for justice. That these stories, that this, um, that these stories of women being missing from the from 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 the world, literally, or they're missing from conversations, uh, was a story of justice. And I was like, okay, God, I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of filling in these places where women's voices are missing, where women's bodies are literally missing, where women are being silenced and oppressed. And so my faith, again, was deeply connected to, to the story of justice. And then coming from South Africa, I was connected to the story. I, I, I wanted to understand more about justice, but then it really went through this prism of women. And so she love was, she loves was birthed out of that. Right. So, Again, because we wanted to raise up women's voices, because I understood that when there's voices missing from a table or from a conversation or from our world, that that is a justice issue, right? And so um, that was really the, the from the beginning, the ethos of She Loves too, right? And so, and then of course we come, and meanwhile, I was still, I was healing, trying to heal the story of growing up in South Africa. And I think, it was so helpful for me when I started reading um, Archbishop Res- um, Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. In fact, it was Daniel Strickland who recommended that book to me at that time. Just, you should read this book. And I remember I could only crack open, I could only read like a line or two, sometimes just a paragraph. Because um, I, I didn't have the, like the, what's um I didn't have the capacity yet. It's almost like mothers, like milk and eating solid foods, right? Like, because I hadn't, I didn't have the capacity yet to really uh, grapple with the story. And so it was really this becoming in reading um, Desmond Tutu's book, right? So line by line, wrestling, 
holding it up as a mirror to me, right? And then the incredible um, permission and gift that he gave for me in that book through the concept of, of Ubuntu, mm. which is an African yeah. concept. I don't know if you've encountered yeah. that, right? Just the, the idea of we are human together. We belong to each other. And how beautifully he talked about white people and black people and people of color and indigenous people and how we belong to each other. And that white people didn't get it. We didn't get it. And so, and yet he was in his graciousness and in his spaciousness and expansiveness of understanding God's love made room for this white Afrikaner woman to say, oh, I actually can think about this. I actually can try to move into this and move and, and, and try and find my becoming because Ubuntu says, I belong in this circle of humanity. I, it was very hard for me to, to believe that for a very long time. And so, but through the generosity of that, even that concept and to see, you know, um, this, we talk about the body. <laughs> we are one body. We're connected to each other. It's, it's, it's a beautiful concept, right? It's a spiritual concept again, right? Of belonging to each other. And so, um, that for me was then a real healing moment and journey and an unfolding journey, right? And I'd be honest with you, as I was trying to kind of heal some of the stuff in my, in my life, in my identity, it wasn't always race related, but every time I was trying to deal, why am I feeling so stuck in this area? I would go back to my journals to God. And every time I would be pulled back to a story in history of what had happened in South Africa. Um, and so like, I felt this very deep division in my own self, right? This very separateness. And every time it's like, I had to go back and kind of just, okay, look at this story. What happened here? What did that do in the land? What did that do in the consciousness of people? How did that impact me as a little girl growing up in Paul? Um, one of the big stories I write about in the book is, was in 1976. And this took me years to unravel and to even, to even have language to be able to read. I can talk about it like this. I'll be honest with you. Right. Um, but in 1976, um, there was a, there was a photograph that went all around the world. And, um, at the time, in South Africa, the apartheid government decided to um, make Afrikaans, my mother tongue, the official language of instruction in schools. And so every person, they wanted to say every person, whether um, whether you lived in Suwetu or whether you lived in Parl, when you went to school, you had to learn in Afrikaans. Okay, people weren't all speaking Afrikaans. We now have 11 official languages. 11 official languages, right? And so um, there was this, um, then the students in South Africa rose up and had this protest. And there was a 12-year-old boy and he wasn't supposed to be in the protest. Years later, I read this in, this, in, his, in the statement in the Truth and Reconciliation um, 
commission in their statements. Years later, I read about more of his story. And so I learned that his sister said um, uh, that he wasn't even supposed to be there that day because he was so young. He was supposed to be in his own school, but these were high school students who were marching to protest against these laws. And, um, and so, but he followed along and it was meant, it was a peaceful protest. And then, um, the police opened fire. There were uh, open fire on the crowd and Hector Peterson, a 12 year old boy, black boy was killed. And there was this photo that went around the world of, um, okay. Of this man carrying Hector. And his sister, Antoinette Citoli, are running next to him. They're looking for help. They feel helpless in the face of so much injustice and of this violence, right? And um, I learned that as protests then were picking up and kind of were um, running around the country, because this was a, this was a big story in South Africa, um, this was even connected to my story as a little girl. And so um, I wrote about that and, um, you know, it's very tender for me and it's because it was such a huge moment, but I, I understand, understood deeply my connectedness that I belong to Hector Peterson. I belong to Hector Peterson and that injustice that was done against him is connected to me and I have a responsibility. And so what is required of me? What does justice ask of me? to do. And so part of the story is a story of repair. Um, there's, a, there's a lot we can talk about, and this is also unfolding, right? Cause the story of repair and restitution is a, is a story that is where we're, 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 we have to figure, figure out what we do with right. this, right? What do we, how do we repair the past? And some of that is financial, mm-hmm. right? Well, we talked, um, I talked about this with so, Lisa um, just a few days ago in regards yeah. to her own book, yeah. tracing her own story, And, you know, I'm not an economist, so my immediate response is, you know, reparations, when we talk about that, money, uh, I immediately think uh, we couldn't possibly have enough money, not that money would fix a problem, but just even literally we don't have the money to pay or compensate for all that has been done. And, you know, what she was trying to teach me was actually it's not as much as we think it would be, and we have Mm -hmm. the we have the money. It's more about the will to use it in this way, i.e., you know, when jillions of dollars were spent in COVID, um, suddenly, you know, government found the will and found the resources to pay for um, this thing. And so she was using that as a comparison. We we have, the money is there if we want it to be, uh, sort of what she was trying to to say. Um, And I don't, is that a conversation in South Africa that's also happening? Um, in the way that it's, okay. it is happening. It, it is happening. It's not, it's, it's in small, small, s- slow pockets, but it is happening. Um, and so I, I, it's interesting. So I, you know, there's things like, and I, I might get the facts wrong here, but, um, you know, you think about when the British government, um, stopped slavery in, 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 in their communities around the world, it was only, I think, is it 2016 or 2018? It might even be more recent that they stopped paying um, the interest on the money they paid for the slave owners. 
not the enslaved people, because at the time they decided they were going to pay the slave owners and not the enslaved people who had been oppressed and who had been yeah. uh, on the, like, right? And so yeah, they, the compensation and they just there, recently, yeah. the compensation went in that direction, right? And so there is room, there is place for that. And they only recently, a few years ago, stopped paying the dividends on that, right? And so you're like, why were the enslaved people not compensated for that? So I would say we were talking about two things. For me, there is the collective, right? There is the government that takes responsibility. There's a collective society repair, reparation that needs to take place. And for me as a person, as an individual, I had to say, where does my story intersect with the story of race and injustice? And so how, where do I need to make repair? Where do I need to make restitution? Um, there is a story that I, I talk about that in the book too. And I've learned that from, from wise people in South Africa who've, who've written a lot about um, repair and restitution. And there's a story just of, of it's kind of like there's the white person in the story and there's a black person in the story and the white, the white kid, um, they're friends, the black kid and the white kid, they're friends. And um, the white kid takes the black kid's bicycle he literally steals his bicycle and says, oh, I, I like this bicycle. I'm going to take it and I'm going to take it for my own now. So he takes the bicycle. He he enjoys the bicycle and, and lives carefully and freely with the bicycle. But these two friends miss each other and they miss each other. And then over time, they kind of come back together and they're like, oh, shall we be friends again? Let's be friends again. And the white kid says, yeah, okay, I want to be friends with you. And the black kid said, yeah, I want to be friends with you. But the black, but um, the white kid doesn't talk about the bicycle. Right. This bicycle was stolen. And the black kid's like, uh, excuse me. And he's still, and he's still using bicycle. it to get to work. <laughs> yeah. That that bike and enables like, him to, kind of- to get to a job that helps him get financially ahead because he, he took that bike. And now he's financially ahead from all the many days, weeks, months, years he's been using the stolen bicycle to get to work to build his economic future. Whether he has the bicycle now, today or not, the bike helped him get ahead. Or you could sell it. And and now you're like, well, I don't have the bicycle. But, you know, here we go. Oh, okay. I need to make, I need to take responsibility for the bicycle that I have taken that I have enjoyed the use of. And so for me, that was a very personal, it's a very personal question. So even this book, I couldn't be a white woman talking about race and talking about apartheid and profiting off of it. So I was, I was very transparent about that because I was like, this needs to be said because I hope that this would be an example for other people too. And this is a cost. This is, this is where we say, what is the cost that I am willing to do? What is my individual responsibility, right? Um, and so 90% of the profits of this book um, is going towards repair and restitution. So as an author, I get three checks. We've gotten, we've received two. The first check went to, um, and I, this was in conversation with Indigenous friends who, who said, okay, so what do, what, what do you suggest? I want to make repair. I want to make restitution. I live on this land. We are guests on this land. Um, what do we do? And she just said, um, the residential school survivor society. And she said, they're doing such beautiful work. 
And so that first check went there, 90% of that. I had to wrestle with that too, because I was like, okay, 10% is for me as a woman also owning my, my, my place in a patriarchal society because South Africa was incredibly patriarchal. And so there's that piece. So there's for me as a place of honoring myself too in this story and my, my dignity as a woman, right? So 90% of this, so 30% to Canada, 30% to South Africa, 30% will be to the US. So already the 90% of the second check went to South Africa and a beautiful conversation again. Okay. What do we do? What do we do with this? And a conversation then with friends. And even in that conversation, how beautiful then is like, even the conversation itself felt like repair, right? Just to be able to talk about that, to invite friends in to say, heck, even for me to decide feels like, they were giving their suggestions. I was like, we're deciding this together. I want you to have a voice in this money. And so, you know, of course, this is a conversation with my husband. For him to understand that how important this is too, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can appreciate it, the marital conversation around. So I'm going to be working on this project for months or years and not really make any money for our family from it. <laughs> I mean, it's real. I mean, that, what I mean is it's the real effects of a decision to do this. Uh, you know, your your kids got to go to school and eat and, you know, all that other stuff. And you're giving a huge amount of your time to this. So it's a, I can appreciate the wrestle that that would be for you uh, at all levels. Yeah. It just, I, and you know, and it was really, it, it became very clear. I have a, I have a beautiful friend, my friend Renee August, um, and she is, I write about her a lot and she's just a, an incredible human being. Um, she, and, and she's my friend and I, and her family had lost so much because of apartheid. And, um, and I just looked at Scott and he's, and he loves Renee and, and I just, and, and, and I, th- I just said to him, I cannot look my friend in the eye. And it's not just Renee, any of my friends. Um, and look them in the eye and say, I benefited again from writing about the story of apartheid. Right. And so I think there's, again, so this is like, I hope this is, even as we were sending the money, we were, did it prayerfully, right? Like that would be a transmission and not just a transaction right? That we would be part of the, this is a way to heal the land and heal the stories between us, heal the relationships between us. Right. Um, I, um, yeah, I just, I hope that can be part of that. So let's talk about the church. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a big convert. It's a big broad one. So you can go in a few different directions, but um, you know, as you've been doing this work yourself, um, what what do you see that that a church or any church has done? Has there been any group of Christians that you feel like encouraged by their responses here? You know, not just, I, you know, there's probably, we can all think of lots of bad news, but do you see anyone who you feel hopeful and encouraged by who are giving this conversation a fruit of the spirit kind of approach? Um, is there anyone we can look to because, you know, it's very, I think it's, 
it would be very easy to make a long list of all the ways we're not doing it right. But are you seeing it go well anywhere? (laughs) Or, you know, is it in, uh, is it in, um, uh, you know, a BIPOC church and how they're addressing it? Is it an indigenous community? I don't know. Is, is there someone you could say, this is someone who's kind of grappling with this and I feel uh, we need to look to them as an encouragement or, um, or even a model for ourselves in something. I think the models are being shaped. Mm. I think there's conversations that are happening and, um, a lot of individuals who are, who are grappling with their individual story. Right. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't, there's communities of people um, but not, not in a way that this community of people is taking responsibility for. And, and I would love to hear of those people, right? Like, I'd love to see where that is happening. Like uh, Instagram, I'm following some accounts. There's, there's, you can, you can go look around restitution repair. Um, there's, there's people really speaking up. I know that there's, I know that there is some work being done here around, um, restitution and repair where people are saying that they're like, just individuals uh, doing things. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the yeah, name sure, of the sure. organization, but a friend has told me about it. I need to learn about that more. I feel like this is an unfolding conversation, to be honest with you. Like it's 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 unfolding, and I mean, even the apology by the Pope, right? Like that was a huge moment, like a huge moment. Like you don't get a lot of apologies. Like I've been researching apologies a little bit too, right? And it feels. It seems like even in the U.S., um, Lisa will talk more about that too, right? Around even apologies for slavery, for the enslavement of people. Like it's the, the, the apology to indigenous people in the U.S. was hidden on a Saturday night or on a Saturday or something. And it was made and it's like you have to go dig for it. It wasn't this and, it, and yes, this is a huge moment in history where you're taking responsibility. And it, you know, I know people have different opinions about what that means, like for those who had been um, impacted by residential schools, right? Like th- this is, this is so big, right? And so one apology is not going to, like people have different opinions about that. And I'm just listening and learning and, and, and leaning in there, right? Um but I do what I'm all of what I'm seeing is that this is a, this is a big step. Like an apology is a big step. Even for Stephen Harper to do that apology, that was a big moment. Um, and so, you know, like those it's, it shifts something. It shifts something. Um, and I, 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 I think this is my work right now is like for me to, I want to pay attention to where are people doing the work? So if, if listeners are, are seeing people who are working on repair. I know Steve Heinrichs um, is doing some beautiful work with decolonization and just really, uh, but I don't know how much in terms of repair, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I would love to, I'm, this is something I yeah. don't know enough about. I would love to learn. Well, I love more. that as an invitation for people listening, um, you know, that this is a community where people learn together. So I expect we'll have comments, feedback, people shout us out, let us know if you're seeing something um, that 
that feels like a crack of light coming into the conversation. We would love to know about that story. Um, just as our time is kind of coming, we're kind of at the end of, this is a huge conversation. We could, could have much longer, but um, there's a few questions that we ask everybody this season at the end of the conversation. And so they're just some, some uh, lighter questions, I hope, but the okay. first one you've kind of already answered, but I don't know if you said the name. The first question is what is a book that has changed how you think about something? Okay. Well, so I guess a dry white season by Andre P. Andre P. Brink. <laughs> um, but it is not like I, um, I honestly, um, I love, uh, oh, there's just so many books, yeah. right? Um, so say the name again, A Dry yeah, White Season. Let's go with season. that one. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah, but I would rather you use somebody else. Please, <laughs> <laughs> a different book. Uh, let's no A Future with a future Without Forgiveness hmm. um, uh, by uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Any of his work on Ubuntu, forgiveness, yeah. No future without forgiveness. Sorry. And the, um, the book by. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Desmond Tutu, if people read some of his work, they probably will be edified. Yeah. So it can't go wrong. <laughs> oh. uh, where is. A, yeah. No future without forgiveness. No future yeah. without forgiveness. And a spot to travel that you'd recommend to somebody, somebody should go to this place. And maybe it's not like a typical place. Like, like what's a spot you've been that you think other people should see? Hmm. So many places. Oh my word. Can I have sure. three? Yes. <laughs> I am a seven on the Enneagram. Okay. So first one that comes to mind is, um, um, it's called Cape point and it's just, it's not officially like the meeting of, of the Atlantic ocean and the Indian ocean, but it, that's, it's sort it's of, sort of accepted yeah. like that. It's sort of like, this is the, it's, it's this, how the land juts into the ocean and it's the meeting of the oceans. And it's this incredible place of, um, just, you see where, how, when I think about how can we do, how can we bring people together? How can we, uh, live, um, move towards unity? I think about that place. Right. And so for me, it's also a deeply spiritual place. And then I think about a tea house in Jofin in Taiwan. It's just incredible to go um, sit in a tea house and do the, the traditional tea ceremony and the little lights oh, and, amazing. Oh, of the little community. It's a little community called Jofin. Um, okay. Now I have to think about the third. Oh, somewhere um, in your hometown. I, love Some, I mean, your home is in like where you live now. <laughs> where, Oh, where should people, if oh, people go to your okay. town, where should people, uh, I live in Surrey, British Columbia. Or, yeah. Ooh. Oh, well, well, we have a restaurant, so I would say Milltown Bar and Grill. Hey, there we go. That's it. <laughs> go to Milltown Bar and Grill in Surrey, BC. Oh, there, the, the picnic tables on a beautiful day is one of my favorite places to be in Amazing. the world. It is just so, so beautiful. Um, yeah. two more questions yes. quick for you. What's a movie <laughs> that makes, has made you cry when you watched it? Could be a Disney movie. Oh, could movies. be a sports movie. Could be a <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I cry in most movies, to be honest with you. Um, I think this is the first movie that comes to mind just because of, um, 
And everyone said it made me cry, but I mean, maybe it did because it just was like, ah, oh, this is a matrix. Yeah, I love the yeah. matrix. <laughs> and the last question, what's your go-to <laughs> ice cream? If you had a flavor of ice cream, you know, there's 50 flavors. You got to pick yours. Which one is it? Probably salted caramel. Salted caramel. Good one. Um, Idolette, thank you. And yours? Oh, mine is um, probably mint chip. I uh-huh. it's my yeah, dad's I love favorite. a mint chip. Okay. It's uh, not as heavy, so you can still have room for it after you've eaten a big meal. <laughs> um, hey, Idolette, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for writing this book. Um, you know, thank you for using it to continue um, goodness in the world and love, you know, moving love forward. Thank you so much. It's so fun to reconnect and uh, see your face again. Uh, where do you want to send people on the internet to find you and to find this book? Okay. Well, okay. So here it is. It's called Recovering Racists, um, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. And you can find that anywhere you buy books. Um, and so I'm on Instagram at Idolette McVicker and um, on Twitter a little bit more sporadically, but I love Twitter actually. I'm Facebook, of course, I'm there. Um, yeah, so I would love I would love to connect and have more of this conversation and continuing this conversation because it's, yeah, bring me your questions, bring me your wrestling and your struggles and let's let's repair this world. let's let's create a different world because I, I honestly believe it's possible. So but we got to do the hard work to get there. Yeah. Right. So awesome. Idolette, thank you. And thank uh, you. Uh, yeah, people go get her book, go find her on the internet. And um, yeah, I look forward to what you do next. Thank you so much. Idolette, thank you so much for that conversation. Interesting to get your perspective on the things that you have wrestled through and journeyed in your life. Next week on the podcast, Pastor Chad Veach from Los Angeles. He's talking about his new book. I love the title, Why I Worry About Everything Because I Pray About Nothing. (laughs) So if that's you, you're gonna wanna join us next week with Pastor Chad Veach. Thank you to our sponsors, Compassion Canada, amazing people who are doing justice work around the world, and also Four Cs, the Canadian Center for Christian Charities. We'll see you over in the digital church Facebook group. The link's down in the show notes, as well as our YouTube channel has all of the podcasts, weekly tutorials coming out. We're here to help you get better as you talk about the best news in the world, Jesus, who loves us all so much. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.